right. Welcome back to Random Badassery, the show. Nope. <laughs> Welcome back to Random Badassery, the podcast dedicated to creativity. My name is Chad Hall, and with me, as always, is Lam Wen. Hello. This is our uh, inspiration episode. This is a second one we've done of these, and uh, it's kind of a free format, so it'll be interesting to see how this one flows. You guys seem to love the last episode, um, which is fantastic. I'm glad you did. I was a little bit worried. We went. I even called it Into the Weeds because we went into the weeds. I'm glad you guys dug it. And uh, before we roll further into the episode, I just want to warn you guys, uh, we're recording a little later in the day than we normally do today, and uh, there may be gardeners showing up in this neighborhood to uh, weed whack and mow lawns, so there may be a random place in the middle of this episode where there'll be a cut, and then we'll finish the episode afterwards. And uh, Lamb, how are you? Uh, pretty good. We're also recording slightly later in the day, everybody. So if we seem like uh, our pace is a little different than usual, it's because our brains have had a, a good eight hours worth of doing other things. Um, so it actually should be interesting. I'm curious to see what kind of dynamic uh, we're going to pull out of this as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, man. The day's been uh, eventful so far. Strangely, I've, I've already driven the equivalent of going uh, to LA and back today, um, even though I haven't gone more than 50 miles outside of the Bay Area. So that's been been fun <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it running to the airport and such yeah airport and then around to basically i made a giant circle around the bay area so i i, I drew a slice of pizza in the bay area <laughs> well i guess we should just jump right into it um again that's probably the best way we're going to get our energy uh you want to start um sure <clears throat> mine is um along the lines of what we traditionally always talk about um the it, it it came i actually found it while we were doing uh, research for one of our previous artist profiles on neil gaiman um and so from for me mine is i've known ambitious people with no aptitude for the thing they did most of whom rather terrifyingly tended to be tended to succeed um and i thought that the that one spoke to a level of determination that i always found to be really interesting when it came to people I knew who pursued things that they didn't necessarily have any aptitude or natural talent towards. Um, I feel like that obsessive nature and that ability to focus and, and, and work hard at one particular thing until you get good at it um, is, is just a trademark of, of, of successful people, regardless of what industry, what medium, um, whether it's artistic or, or business or whatever it may be. Um, so it's something that I've always tried to strive for in myself. You know, I have kind of an obsessive nature. Um, and so it's a it's it's just a matter of finding the right thing to point that obsessive nature towards and make sure that it's positive and creative. Who said it? Neil Gaiman. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> What's it from? One of his uh, uh, blogs or something? Yeah, I be I could not find the source to be honest with you. It was it was I think it was actually during um, an interview. Um, I, I I looked all over the place. I, I'm going to continue to look while we've got this episode going, um, but it's it's inconsistent where the source of that's from. Uh, a couple of places I I saw it was in um, an interview that he did, and then um, a, a few places I saw that it came from a blog post. So I'm not exactly sure. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's a few quotes of his that I've run across especially when we were doing the episode that were the same way uh, one thing would say it was from a commencement speech another would say it was from a blog and I, I suspect it's that he's 
reusing certain lines or is this starts out as part of a a blog and then it ends up in a commencement speech and then sure. eventually maybe it makes it into a book who knows speaking of which uh his commencement speeches are amazing uh so anyone out there who hasn't checked those out please take a look at those they're rather inspiring absolutely um going back to the point of of your quote though i, I definitely think that's true i mean they've been finding i've, I've been re- hearing a lot of people it's like a you know, like there seems to be these trends of thoughts that go around, right? And this seems to be a trend of thought recently, this idea that uh, don't worry about finding uh, something to do with your life that's something that you love. Find something you're good at uh, because you'll love it because you're good at it. And I think that's kind of it, it goes along the lines with what you're saying here in the sense that uh, what he's saying in the sense that uh you don't go into something because necessarily you're you're great at it. You go into it because you want to, and you mm-hmm. succeed because what you put into it, and because of the passion and the interest that you have in it. Uh, I really, I've always had a problem with this idea of innate, inborn talent. And yeah. the one of the big problems I have with that is, I mean, look at these musical prodigies. You know, these kids can, you know, this kid can write for the violin at five. That's amazing. But at 35, he's still selling tires. You know, like they don't become huge musical influences in the world. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to every rule. Um, Beethoven and Mozart being two of them. Um, But for the most part, you don't see this. So, like, to me, talent is irrelevant. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Actually, there's there are a lot of people throughout the course of my life because, you know, there there are some things that I have a a natural aptitude towards. Like, for example, I have perfect pitch. Um, But... That's never made me a better musician, to be honest with you. It makes it makes my ability to listen to music a little bit better. Um, but even that's practiced. You know, Crystal and I talk about it all the time, uh, which is, you know, it's it's not that I'm proud of having any particular talent. It's that I work my ass off <laughs> to get good at these things. Right. You know, I, I look at the example of golf, for example, um, and I only started maybe, you know, five or six years ago, um, really taking it seriously. But in that amount of time, the amount of progress that I've made because of my sheer will and just ridiculous dedication um, have made it so that I completely changed careers. Um, I started and succeeded at, at creating a, a very popular, you know, Instagram and podcast for the golf side. And it's only because I had such an unrelenting passion for it that nothing could stop me. Right. Determination, I mean, more than anything determination grit whichever you want to use they're they're two different things but they work together seems to it it seems to be the only thing that defines success I mean, like I, I think about in the late 80s when we had that um you know the whole baseball thing with uh jose canseco and uh what was the other guy's name sammy sosa mm-hmm. you know that and and the whole thing about um steroids and you know like oh, these guys didn't used to be huge all of a sudden they're huge and they're they're hitting home runs and like is it fair and then of course you get into the lance armstrong debate and uh whatever that guy's name that was that played for the giants um very bonds very bonds <laughs> obviously i'm not a sports person but the whole debate there was you know like is, is steroid use good i mean i mean not is it good but is it should it be allowed should it be the thing that's ignored and i don't Obviously, not being in that field much, I don't remember who said this, but somebody said something along the lines of, so what? So these guys get ripped and they can hit the ball harder. That doesn't give them the coordination, doesn't give them the training, doesn't give them the speed, doesn't give them all the 
microsecond decisions that they have to make in swinging that bat to hit it and to hit that ball at the same time, no matter what kind of pitch is thrown. And I feel like to some degree that that when we talk about these natural, quote unquote, born talents, all it does is it gives you a slight edge. But you know, it, sometimes that can be a curse. Uh, it's of course. Like, like being a smart child, you don't study because you you know you can absorb things. But then later, when you get to a hard topic, you don't know how to study because you never had to study. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's tangible examples of that in my life when it comes to music. Um, you know, for the first maybe you know through elementary school, through middle school, and through a good portion of high school, um, because of my 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 um, because of my perfect pitch, I was able to get away with working a third as much um, as all of the other kids who were in the music classes that I took because pitch was just easy for me. So there was an innate sense of, 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 of just simplicity to music that made it so that pursuing music was, was not hard for me at all, but that made me really lazy. Um, and it didn't, it, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't reveal itself until much later in life, like in my, my late teens and early twenties um, when I, actually needed to develop some skills like for example when you play an instrument and when you're 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 playing piano there is absolutely no replacement for practice you can't have a natural ability to if you don't have the chops you don't have the chops and the only thing that gives you that is is just playing and playing and playing and practicing and practicing so regardless of how much innate talent you have if you don't hone that talent or use it um, to 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 enhance your your ability to gain even more skill towards that particular thing you're never going to get any better I just watched that movie Searching for Bobby Fischer the other night. And in it, they're talking about Bobby Fischer. For those who don't know, Bobby Fischer was, and probably still is to this day, the most famous chess player of all time. Um, there's kind of an extraordinary moment of American history where chess was more popular than the Super Bowl. Um, anyhow, Bobby Fischer against Boris Fatsky, um, famous Russian player. That was the event that everybody was watching, and in this in this movie, which is a, it's a uh, it's this movie is actually based on uh, the story of a real person by the name of Josh Josh Waitzkin. Um, he was a chess prodigy himself, and he was uh, in in the voiceover in the movie. The he's talking about giving you facts about Bobby Fischer because Bobby Fischer is the guy that when you're in the chess world, everybody talks about. He's the game. His games are the games you learn, and things like that. And Bobby Fischer was good at chess. Like he had, he could see things in a way that other people couldn't see them. But that wasn't what made him great. What made him great was he was completely obsessed with it, to the point where he would read books and um, study moves all the time. And he got to the point where he would play chess games against himself, and. A lot of times when people do things like this, they play games against themselves. They always pick kind of which side they want to win. Um, Bobby Fischer wouldn't do that. He would play each side equally uh, as hard. And if you know anything about chess or just games in general, think about that and really think about what that means. It means he's going into this and he's going, I move this piece forward, right? So the black moves forward here. And this is my plan. This is what I plan on doing. Well, when he switches over to the white, he's not just playing against a good opponent. He's playing against an opponent that he knows what that opponent's plan is. So Jeez. he he knows <laughs> he knows what he's planning to do with the black when he steps over to be the white. So he has by doing that and playing that hard, 
he's uh he's playing against an opponent that he would never be able to play against you know somebody where everything you do they're going to know what you do sure <laughs> and the whole point here of course being that play hard focus hard put the grid in it, that's what's going to give you guys the, the the skills and the success that you're looking for and the satisfaction which to me is more important than the other two is the satisfaction with what you're doing is when you're when you're wrapped up in something when you're focused in it when you love it and you feel it passionately that's that's where the that's where the joy of creation comes from and that's what makes your perspective a little more unique too i know you and i fall into this every once in a while too where there's there's an obvious this is part of the reason why i don't critique other people's writing generally um because you can always tell whether someone's read or not um and there there's there's and I don't want to be the person that, that, that kills people's passion towards doing a particular thing by telling them whether something is good or bad or even giving them, you know, a, a reasonable critique on something unless they really, you know, there's always a disclaimer from my side. You know, be prepared for what I may tell you uh, because it may not be what you want to hear. And, you know, that's true with almost everything. Like you and I are, are, are pretty deep studies in certain things. Like writing is one particular thing and uh, music or, or film or whatever it may be, you know, we, we have a, a long depth of experience with those things. And so because of that, um, I think the obsessive nature towards certain things, you know, even when it comes to writing or music, for example, it makes you a better reader. It makes you a better listener. And over time, that makes you a better writer or a better musician. I used to feel the same way about not reading other people's writing. Um, now I tend not to do it just because people expect more from me than maybe I'm able to deliver. Um, in the sense that, you know, when you put yourself out as a writer, then they expect you to actually write what they're trying to write for them. Um, sure. Not everybody, but it's happened to me enough times that I'm very hesitant. But what I did learn about what you were talking about um, is, yeah, I've, I felt for a while where it's like, oh, I don't want to discourage this person. But I don't feel that way anymore. The way I feel about it now is if me telling you what I think you should do with this or my suggestions or anything along those lines, it deters you from doing it, then you weren't that into it anyways. If you're not meant, yeah, I, yeah. if you're not mentally prepared to take abuse for creating something that you want to put out into the world, remember, these are not people who are writing for themselves. These are people, usually people when people want you to read something from them, it's because this is something they want to release into the world. And if you're going to release something into the world and you're not ready to take abuse, then you're not ready because you're going to get abuse. Sure. You're, you're going to get a lot of what's even worse is you're going to get a lot of apathy. And sometimes apathy is the most painful thing in the world. And I can tell you that I got no negative criticism on my first book. Mm. But I also got uh, no praise necessarily. I got just kind of middle of the ground responses, which to me was just politeness and uh, apathy. There was a lot sure. of silence. And I'm glad it happened to me because it, it got me prepared for the reality of what it is to be a creator, putting things out into the world. Um, the, I mean, this podcast for six months of the first year, we didn't even know what our download numbers were. So we had no idea if anyone was even listening to us. Now we can see how many of you guys are listening, but we rarely get feedback. We rarely get tweets. We rarely get uh, Instagram uh, or emails or comments on the website. I, I think we've had four total. 
Um, but there's astronomically larger numbers of people listening. And that apathy, that silence is something you have to be prepared for too. So what I would say is to anybody out there that feels maybe a little bit sensitive or insecure about what they're doing, you should feel sensitive and, and insecure because you're you're taking a risk. That's how you should feel when you're taking a risk. Plus, but, it, reminds, it reminds you that you care. <laughs> exactly. And, and the thing about it, too, though, is it, it shouldn't deter you. And if it does, then you need to reevaluate your value system or you need to reevaluate whether it's what you actually want to be doing. And none of those things are a bad thing. None of those things, you know, some people want to be a writer. They just don't want to be a writer. And, and what I mean by that is they like the idea of it. They don't like the work of it. And that's fine. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, it's okay to have a fantasy. But, uh, but a, a fantasy is different than a dream. A dream is something you work towards. A fantasy is something that you just kind of roll through your head every once in a while and it amuses you. Just know which one is which and it'll make your life easier for sure. But uh, also I found that sometimes you don't mean to, but when you criticize, oh, not criticize, but when you analyze somebody's work and you give them feedback, uh, sometimes you piss them off. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do for people. I totally agree with that. It's it, back in my, well, not not back. I, I sound so old when I say stuff like that. It was just like maybe three or four years ago, but it feels like a millennium ago. Um, but I remember reading, you know, my friend Keith is a decent writer. He's actually, more specifically, he's a poet. And obviously, uh, poetry is a pretty subjective medium. But he knew that I was a pretty um, well-read poet myself. Um, and I was a decent poet along with that. So... I remember he showed me a piece and I tore and I, you know, he, he told me to be as ruthless as I could be, um, you know, given that he was trying to write for a specific style of poetry and um, base the feeling on, on a particular poet that he liked. So he told me to rip it to shreds. And I did. And uh, he didn't talk to me for four months after um, the critique. It was a three hour long conversation we had about his poem. And it was it was a four pager, so it was decently long, um, and I I literally just tore it to shreds. And about a year after that critique, he said that it made him completely reevaluate his voice and perspective as a poet. And even though ultimately he didn't change a whole lot about the original poem, he he broadened his perspective on his own poetry to include. Um, a voice that was more clear or more distinct, and I, I, I can't agree with you more. Like it, you're going to piss people off, but that's the point. You know, it, it's 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 the same thing we said before about, um, you know, if you're scared to get a critique, then you're probably doing the right thing because that means that you care enough about your work to, for that opinion to to hurt you. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you didn't care, if you were apathetic about your own work, then it's really easy for other people to be apathetic about it as well. Well, plus when you sometimes when you piss somebody off, they get ten times better just to prove you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here, I mean, this is actually I'm I'm glad we we kind of um, stumbled into this conversation. Uh, a show cre with uh, a show about creativity. It's it's kind of strange that we've never talked about how to take criticism. Sure. Um, for me, and I'll I'll give my input on that, and then I'd love to hear how you take it. Um, for me, I first of all. To give a little bit of backstory, I was one of the sensitive people. 
I was one of the people who was not good at taking criticism. I would get offended. How dare you think you know what I'm trying to say? Um, and what that was, it was a manifestation of my insecurity, knowing that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And it, I felt defensive because I felt like it had to be defended. You know, anytime you end up in this mindset where you say, I'm just not understood. It, first of all, if you're a writer, this this is different in other um, in other art forms. But if you're a writer, your job is to be understood. So if you're not being understood consistently, that means that you are not writing to be understood. And as much as you may love something because it's mysterious, uh, it may not be beneficial to you. Unless it's, you're just writing for yourself, that's fine. But if you're writing for an audience, there has to be some degree of tangibility in everything that's written. And if a if a writer can put something together and love it and then have somebody come back and say, I don't get it. And another person, I don't get it. I don't get it. You have to be able to ask yourself the question, is this my fault? Now, there's a lot of stipulations to this. First of all, never, ever, ever, ever show something you're working on until you think it's done because when you op you open yourself up to criticism when you're still in the infantile stages and the developmental stages of something that you're creating you risk the chance of losing the vision of what you're creating you don't want to question your ideals and everything while you're in the middle of it finish it get the rough draft out i don't mean obviously this is ready to be published now you can read it get the rough draft out Maybe go through another draft yourself. Get to the point where you feel solid and you don't think that you can contribute anything more to the piece yourself. Then show it to someone. Because you have strength, you understand what you're making. And then if Does, somebody's right, you can go with that. Does that change depending on your medium? Because I feel like for I've done that for, for songs where I'll show people incomplete pieces of songs and I feel like the criticism is actually helpful there. I can't speak to songwriting in the sense that I've never, um, the times that I've written songs, I've never shown anything to anybody pretty much. Um, <laughs> it's just for my own, for my own self edification. Uh, I, I'm just speaking from the perspective of writing. That's really all I can say for that stuff. I, I'm sure other mediums like painting, who knows? Um, <laughs> I can't imagine showing somebody a, a half finished painting anyways. But the reason for this is you're, you're weak when you're creating something because you don't know what you're making yet. Most of the time you don't know what you're making until you've fixed and rewritten and changed things five, six, seven times. And then you start to, to really understand it. Philip Roth said that he would write 200 pages of a book before he actually started the book. He'd write 200 pages and throw them away and go, okay, now I know what I'm writing about. And then he would start. Uh, so you don't want to open the door at a point when you don't even know what you're having. Because if you get one person who says this, another person who says this, another person who says this, now you're going off in four different directions. And you can't please everyone. And it's also really important that when you do show these things to, the, to people, you pick the right people. Um, if you're writing a book about science fiction, it's probably not a good idea to show it to people who don't read science fiction. Sure. 
because they're going to have criticisms that are undue. You know, oh, this is weird. Well, if you don't like science fiction, yeah, probably a lot of it's weird. Um, or fantasy. You know, like, oh, dwarf? Who wants to hear about a dwarf? Everybody that reads fantasy. Um, so understanding those things, understanding the person's literacy as well. Um, are they well-read? Are, are you well-read? Are you looking for readers that are well-read? The people that you want to share this book with are people, number one, whose ideas you're going to respect. Um, but also people who fit into the demographic of your reading audience. Um, if it, your friend may love reading um, Russian literature, but may hate poetry. If you're writing poetry, don't show it to that friend. Show it to a friend who loves poetry. Now, of course, after you go through those friends, you can show it to other people um, if that's really what you want to subject yourself to. But it's better to find the right audience, to get the right criticism. And then when you get that criticism, this is what I do. I I always react in my head. I always react, but then I put it away. I allow myself that reaction because it's, it's going to come up and I'm not going to allow shame into that situation. But then I sit on it and I sit on it. And I have to, you have to leave the door open for the possibility that what they're saying is true. And sometimes that takes a little digestion. You know, somebody says, what's going on? Like I, I read something to somebody once and they said, what's going on in this first scene? And I said to myself, oh, they weren't paying attention. But then I had to really think about it. And I looked at the scene and I looked at the scene and said, there's not much to grab onto here. That's what this this person's expressing is the fact that this scene moves too fast. Mm. So I need to chunk up this scene. I need and it made it better because I heard what the person said. But there's also a confidence. This is one of the reasons it's very important to to have a good solid grasp on what you're writing before you show it to people. Because you have to know when to reject criticism as well. Um like when I when I did my first book, I knew why I wanted things the way I wanted them. And for example, nobody's going to read the way that you write in your head. Exactly. Right. There's a, there's a voice, there's a reason, um, a feeling that um, your job is try to try to express that as best you can, but they're not always going to get it. So uh, I, I tend to write for emphasis. Sometimes I say, do not instead of don't um, because it's an emphasis thing for me. And depending on how you read the sentence, it works. Well, I've, I've had editors see do not and change it into don't. And when I'm reading it, I know my work well enough so I can go through and go, nope, I mean, I know I mean do not hear and I know why. Um, so it, it helps you to deal with those criticisms in, in a productive manner. Because the whole point here is what you're doing, you want to make it better. You want to make it the best that it can be. And if you allow yourself to be um, shocked and um, appalled by criticism, you're never going to get better because that's, you have the wrong mindset. You're putting this out and you're showing it to people so that they can pat you on the back. That's not the purpose of this. Yeah, and I think that's an, I think that's a, an important distinction to draw too is that, you know, for me, um, I, I've taken criticism very differently throughout the course of my life. You know, early on, for example, um, when I was – I, it, it sounds arrogant to even say, um, but, you know, because of, especially with the music stuff, um, because my parents were both musical and because we all had perfect pitch, um, I was pretty far ahead of most kids my age. 
And so anytime I, I would get criticism, it would always be inherently positive. And so at a very young age, I really disliked pod, positive, criti- or positive re- reaffirmation um, or affirmation um, concerning my work. And it drove me crazy. I, I always wanted to know what I could do better, not what I was already doing well. And so I think I didn't really understand how criticism could really work both positive and negative until I was in my early 20s when I really started to delve deeper and deeper into my writing. Um, and at that point, I, I, I made a very uh, clear discovery at some point concerning specific pieces that I'd written for a literary magazine um, in that when you ask for criticism, you're, it's not necessarily that you're weak um, or when you're creating a piece of artwork, it's not necessarily that you're weak, at least not for me. It's that you're vulnerable. Um, it's that you, if you're doing it right, then there's a truth to it that's only true to you within the moment that you're creating it. And that's a very revealing thing. That's, you know, for, for a particular part of who you are. And so for me, criticism was always something that, that took on many different forms depending on the type of work. Like, for example, if I'm writing a journalistic piece and I don't really have much of an emotional investment in the subject matter, then I don't really care about the criticism necessarily. I just want to know if it's decently written and if the narrative is clear. Um, but if it's something like a piece of poetry or, or, or a piece of prose that I'm writing that matters a lot to me, then I take the criticism very differently. I even ask very specific questions. I just don't, I don't just ask things like, um, you know, what do you think of this? Um, and so I think that's something really important for people to understand about criticism, too, is when you're going into criticism, it's important to be clear about what you want criticized. Um, if you want an overall feeling for the piece itself, then by all means, ask that. But for my writing, for example, when it came to poetry, I would ask people things like, what do you think of the form? What do you think of the syntax? What do you think of the word choice? What do you think of the pacing? You know, I would ask very specific questions so that it wouldn't it would help the, the person who is doing the, cri- the critique um, have more of a, 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 a through line as to what I was looking for as a writer and what I was looking to to um, looking to accomplish from the piece itself. At the very end of something like that, I remember doing some writing critiques with, with you know, writing groups that I was a part of. Um, I would ask a few very specific questions, and then I would ask them, you know, so what did you feel overall about the piece? What did you feel like it needed to be changed, or what kind of feeling did you get from it? So I think it's not just about asking for criticism or not asking for criticism or how you should take it or how you shouldn't take it. It's also very important to understand what kind of criticism you want and how to get the answers that you need in order to produce better work. Absolutely. And that's the very important thing for everyone to understand is you're not going to these people. You shouldn't be going to these people to to create cheerleaders. That's not that's not their job. Um, And you're not trying to find fans. That's when you put something out. When you're showing to this, this to people before you're finishing, when you're looking for criticism, what you should be looking for is a teammate. Yeah. And you have to keep that perspective, no matter what they say. You have to keep that perspective in there. Is that their intention, whether right or wrong, should be, if you pick the right people with the right um, attitude and the right emotional intelligence, their job should be to try to help you make it better. And sometimes they'll be right. And sometimes they'll be wrong. And it's like I said, it's very important for you to understand that distinction. But it's also important when you go into these relationships with these people that that you express that to them as well. Some of the things that you tell me I'm going to do, some of them I'm not. 
and that will be not based on the validity of your criticism. It'll be based on the validity of my story and what I think fits my story best. And I would appreciate your help in any way. And this is a, this is a very, it's a very delicate relationship. Uh, it's not talked about a lot anymore. I think just because of the way the world has kind of changed and books aren't really uh, as much in the mainstream or at least writers and so forth aren't as much in the mainstream as they used to be. But uh, we've seen at certain points in recent history, like the relationship between a producer and we'll say a, a rapper or a the relationship between a director and an actor. You know, Johnny Depp is in a lot of Tim Burton films. They have a rapport. They have a relationship. Um, the same thing used to be said of writers and editors. And I'm sure that the relationships still exist because they have to. This is a teamwork. This is a partnership. Um, finding an editor that understands what your purpose is as well. Um, if you're writing literary fiction, you want a re a, a an editor, someone or a critic, someone's going to give you criticism, who also knows that you're writing literary fiction, so that they don't try to dumb down some of the more beautiful language that you put in, but they also understand that sometimes you will go overboard and they'll tell you when to put on the brakes. Um, it's teamwork. It really is, and that's that's an important thing. Don't see these people as um, gatekeepers. I think some people see criticism. Uh, Getting criticism from people as a as a gatekeeping thing. Can I get this past this person? Can I get this past this person? It's the wrong mindset. It'll make you miserable. Well, I think I think it goes to the thing that we always talk about when it comes to to work. You know, the the collaboration between different artists. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that that's what the nature of a relationship between an editor and a writer is. I mean, we're picking a very specific medium here when we're talking about writing because you know both you and I are writers, so that's that's part of where our perspective comes from. But it's definitely a partnership. And the more you see it as something that may potentially be, you know, if you think of it as something that 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 is going to bring you validation, um, then you're barking up the wrong tree. Or if you think that 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 person is, you know, the gatekeeper, um, as you put it, then that relationship will never have the the give and take that it it can have in order to create beautiful work. And I, I feel like there are certain people that that you know, even even accomplished writers or artists that I know that I will never have critique my work just because their mindset is not in the right place to give me the critique that I feel like I need. Um, or if they're just going to be the, the type of uh, the type of cheerleader that you're talking about, where it's just congratulatory, and it doesn't really serve any practical purpose beyond that. And don't get me wrong, that's nice. You know, we're all human. So let's let's just put that out on the table, too, which is it's nice to hear positive affirm affirmation about your work. It's great to hear positive, um, you know, positive reviews of your work, but it's not inherently helpful. And this is stuff that I've learned from experience. When I when I was editing that first book, I think I had five editors. Um, I, I'm kind of strange in the sense that I prefer multiple editors. Um, I, I, li I like to see it as different passes. Um, and th that idea I've still stuck to, but the mistake that I made in, uh, by no fault of the, of the people, because I'm still grateful for it, every one of them. Um, the mistake I made is that I, I, I picked people who I respected as people. Um, but I didn't necessarily pick people that, um, were best suited for the job that I needed them to do. 
and what I mean by that is they're, they're good people and I trust their opinions on life. But maybe um, like a couple of them didn't really even read much. And so it was it was good to hear feedback from people who don't read much. But uh, to use that as such a critical um, point was it was it was kind of not very helpful. Um, because they didn't really have, they felt bad because they couldn't give me feedback because they didn't really, it wasn't their milieu. You know, they, they didn't know the, they didn't know what to do or how to express that. Um, so like for, for this book that I'm doing now, I, I have three people in mind, one of which, um, will be lamb for all of you who want to know, um, uh, another one, a person who actually edited the first book, who I will, um, is our friend Teddy. And Teddy is the most laser pinpoint precision um, editor for grammatical and spelling mistakes than anybody I've ever seen. He catches huh. stuff that computers miss. That's crazy. It's amazing. Um, so th- that's a different pass. You know, I'm not expecting him to tell me. Uh, what he expects uh, about the development of the character at this point, because that's not that's not his interest. Um, but he is an amazing editor for grammar and for spelling. And he, there were things that I think he was the last pass of the first book. It had gone through four people plus me, my multiple edits. He caught about eight things. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and then uh, I will have a third person. And I think that the third person, um, so, so like for you, you, Lamb, you're more, you're going to be more of my story development side. You understand my writing style. Um, you have a similar um, writing perspective and reading perspective. So you'll be able to help me develop that in, in the story sense. And then I know somebody who actually sits perfectly in the middle ground between the two of you. So uh, that will be an interesting an interesting perspective there because they'll be able to give me um, more technical, um, grammatical things like that. Um, and then also be able to do more of the story development, character development. Um, not that you can't do some of the spelling and grammar stuff yourself, but... I just, oh, I, I'm definitely not the right choice for that. <laughs> I already know that for sure. I just don't think I can. I don't foresee a situation where you and I are sitting and talking about whether I should use a contraction in a sentence or not. Yeah, <laughs> in all likelihood, probably not. Anyways, um, you know what? Uh, let's move on. Let me let me do my quote. It's because there's some stuff at the end of the show I want to really cover today. Um, my quote is, this is actually an interesting one. It's, it's in a different direction perhaps for us, although I don't really think so. Um, what I've, what I've started to do with these, um, I should started to, I am starting to do this only second time we've done it. Um, instead of looking for a quote to bring to this, what I've started doing is just kind of seeing what sticks with me from the month. And if there's something that I've experienced from the month that, a quote of some sort and then bringing that in because it, that means that it's inspiring me. Um, so this one is actually, it came from a meditation. Um, and it was just an idea that, um, I, I, I don't know a lot about this person. There's someone by the name of Eckhart Tolle, um, kind of a weird looking dude, kind of, kind of looks like a character from a fantasy book. Um, anyways, this, there's one little point in this meditation that he, I, I found that I was listening to, 
and it just it it stuck in my mind and so i'm bringing it to you guys here today it said accept this moment the way it is why because when you argue with what is you suffer you're not at peace and that's uh, that seems it it seems so simple but I, i remember at the moment of hearing it it was almost like a revelation in the sense that oh i i'm sure you lamb you've heard over and over again the buddhist idea of um we suffer because we want mm-hmm. this idea of live in the present because uh, you suffer when you think of the past and the future. I always got that on a kind of conceptual level, but this quote actually brought that home to me in the sense that uh, take it to the degree of like um, anxiety or hypochondria. Why are you having anxiety? Because you think that something's going on. So now you're projecting an outcome into the future. Um, same with hypochondria. I believe something's going on. I am projecting this into the future. Um, it seems like depression and stuff like that comes from the past. Um, so you're focusing on things in the past and not letting yourself move past them. But what you're ignoring is a present moment. So this idea of accept this present moment, accept right now, accept that you're alive. It's a very, very powerful statement because... What it is, when you actually accept the present moment and you go, okay, I'm here now. And this wording, I'm sorry if this seems a little uh, hippy-dippy, guys. I don't really know. I'm not experienced in talking about this kind of stuff to people outside of my own head. So I don't know um, vocabulary that make this less that. So just kind of bear with me. But accepting the present moment just kind of means it's it's really simple to me. It was just going, yes. Like right now. Right now is cool. I'm cool with right now. It's just simple. Like right now is nice. And, and it seems like such a simple, silly thing. But when you actually do that, you let go of those other things. Even if it's just for a moment, you let go of those other things. And you feel good for a second. And when you start doing that, it's this really weird thing is you you become more alert um, because you are actually like I'm I'm sitting in a room by myself right now staring at a microphone okay like that's there's nothing spectacular going on I'm talking um, with lamb and recording it for you guys now that's spectacular but only if I'm aware of it only if I pay attention only if I listen to lamb and only if I give responses that um, I'm feeling does this become powerful? This has become valuable because I'm living now. But if I'm thinking right now while we're recording this about wonder how many downloads we're going to get on this, this episode's going to suck. Sure. Or if I'm thinking about the last one, it's going to suck. Uh, and it, just the idea of that, and I think that the reason that I wanted to bring that there into that into this episode is because that is the state that you should be in when you are creating. Be in now and accept now which means not going when you sit down to write something letting go of the fear that it might be uh, something that's not good letting go of anything that anybody any criticism that you've gotten or any of those things be in the then and just write or play the music or paint and just enjoy that act and live in it and and feel it and like that 
Because when you do that, you're going to be alive and what you create is going to be alive because you're, like I said, your um, awareness, it, it opens up. I can be very acutely aware of what this microphone looks like and to start to appreciate it. And it sounds like such a simple and ridiculous thing to do. But it's not about the actions that we do, these little ridiculous things that we do. It's about what they benefit us. If I can sit here and, and to use the word, meditate on the shape of this microphone, and it brings me more acutely aware into the present moment, then it doesn't matter that I was looking at a microphone. It matters that I'm here. And that's the same with writing. If you can, or creation in general, if you can focus on what you're making then, and make it the best thing that you can make and the most enjoyable thing that you can make. You'll never be disappointed with what you create. And, and that that's I don't I don't know. I'm I'm at a loss for words of where to go with that. Lamb, <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Well, I, I have very similar thoughts on it as well. I mean it goes a lot back to our, our previous episode. I think my approach to the same thing is is a little more pragmatic um and easier at least for me to to come to terms with, which is um, living in the now for me is about creating the brain state that makes it so that you don't over anticipate what might be, um, an outcome one way or the other is irrelevant if you don't do the action to your fullest. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that I learned definitely from, from golf. Um, for example, um, there's a phenomenon in golf. If, if anyone who plays, there are times where you will be playing faster than the people around you or the pe- the group in front of you or the group behind you. And so because of that, you may play the waiting game. Um, and in that waiting game, you know, there may be a good 10 or 15 minutes between your first shot and your second shot. So what do you do for those 10 or 15 minutes? Do you anticipate the shot? Do you stress about, you know, pulling off the, the, the perfect, the perfect shot? Do you do you overthink it? No, I mean, if you look at most good golfers or if you, you know, and it's something I'm actually trying to employ in my own life um, as well as with golf itself is you take yourself out of that moment and you appreciate what you're doing in that moment rather than anticipating the shot that you may hit 15 minutes from now. So, you know, I'll stop and I'll have a conversation with a friend. I'll ask them about their lives or, you know, I'll listen to a song or I'll do something that that brings me back into a moment of presence versus a moment of anticipation. And I think that's that's the, the easiest way for me to understand it is if you're always wanting something or if you're always anticipating something that might or might not be, then you're never doing the thing itself. So, you know, in working on writing, for example, um, whenever it is that I sit down to write my personal podcast, I completely separate myself from the rest of the world. And I have to forcibly do that. Um, you know, I have to I have to not sit there in front of the microphone or, or in front of the keyboard while I'm writing and think, OK, well, after I'm done with this, I have to I have to work or I have to eat or I have to drive or whatever it may be. In that moment, the only thing I'm thinking about is what I'm doing. And I've been working on creating that state in my own brain for a long time. And I finally think um, that, you know, the the practice um, that I've put into to creating that brain state is paying off so that now anytime I'm in a situation where I have to be in the moment, which, by the way, is almost all the time, um, you know, sometimes you have to plan ahead and you have to anticipate um, what may come from certain outcomes or whatever it may be. But even the act of doing that is is being in the present if you're if you're problem solving um, in the moment. Um, so for me, I definitely have forcibly created a different space for myself to achieve that purpose. Um, I've created tools for myself in order to try to be more present as well. Um, 
for example, um, it's it's it goes back to to you know let's let's just go completely off the wall. Let's go into the weeds on this one. So let's <laughs> let's let's talk about relationships for a second, right? If you come home from work and you are in a certain state and you expect that that state is going to lead to an argument with your significant other, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have an argument with your significant other. Instead of being in the present and and just coming home and accepting whatever state they're in and whatever state that you're in and being grateful and positive. Um, and, you know, it, it all sounds like hippy-dippy crap and we talk about if, – if you knew Chad and I, the one thing that you would you would probably – the, one of the the last adjectives that you would use to describe either Chad or I is hippy dippy. Um, I know for me, for example, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty stern, intense dude. So for me, I'm definitely not hippy dippy. But I do inherently believe in 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 creating a positive space. And so if you anticipate negativity, or if you feel like negativity is going to be a part of that environment when you enter it, then you're going to create that. You're going to forcibly create that in the environment itself. Or you're going to be so tentative about the environment that it will ultimately become negative because it's, it's, you predispose that environment to that negativity. Absolutely. And I would say also the reason that Lamb and I are so open to the idea of positivity and, and, and openness is because we weren't that before and we found out where that road leads you to. Oh, I agree with that completely. <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not some, oh, life is wonderful and we've always felt. No, we both have suffered from brutal, crippling anxiety, awful, awful, negative, dark, um, electric feelings in your body, uh, the most vicious, nauseating feeling uh, fear and crippling. Uh, it's, I can't even, there's, there's not even enough negative words to describe those states. <laughs> We've been there and it sucks. So I'm willing, and I know Lamb is too, I'm willing to do anything not to have that. And, right. and I've said it before and I'm going to reiterate it again because I find that when you re when you reiterate things, people start to understand that when you're negative, when you're miserable, you don't create anything of substance sure or value because you're 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 wrapped up inside of yourself when you're miserable you're self-contained there is no one else in the world and creativity is inherently generous so therefore it requires the understanding that there are other people in the world so um and i want to also touch on a point that you touched on for a second there with the relationship thing that is the second part of that quotation or the middle part i guess is when you argue with what is you suffer in other words um you you feel miserable when things aren't the way you want them to be and you continually fight against that i want this person to say this when i come home they don't say it now what's the problem? Now the problem is you because you haven't let go of that. You're holding on to the fact that they didn't say, I love you when you walk through the door. So you're arguing with what is. And when you argue with what is, you're in pain because you're in an argument. So that's the same thing when you write and when you create. You have to accept the limitations of your talents you have to accept the limitations of the medium. You have to lim accept the limitations of the world and time and space and all of these other things. 
anybody could write the perfect novel if they had 800 years to do it. But you don't have 800 years to do it. If you're lucky, you have 40 years. So, that's a limitation. Accept what is. I want this book to be out before I'm 50. <laughs> Actually, I want this book to be out. This Speaking of myself, I want this book out before I'm 41. Or f at least 42. So there's a limitation I've set upon myself. Now, I could argue with that. But it's, it's not something that's going to benefit me. I need to accept it. I need to accept when I'm writing a first draft that this is a first draft and I don't need to perfect it. That I just need to get it out. And I need to accept that. And I need to move forward and finish the, the trajectory. And then when I go back through, my job is to look for grammatical mistakes. That's the only thing I'm looking for. Everything else, I have to accept as it is. So there's this... This, we may have gone into a little hippy-dippy um, psychology area here, but this is very practical advice for being a creator. You have to accept things as they are sometimes so that you can focus on the things that you are changing or you are improving. Well, along those same lines, too, I think the acceptance thing is, is very useful. I, I mean, I, as a poet, I remember doing this a lot um, in that if you accept the moment for what it is and you accept what you're doing within that moment, it also allows you to take turns in the work that you wouldn't have otherwise because you were too, you were, you were anticipating the story too much. Um, and I think, you know, you, you and I have talked about this in different forms too, as well Is that whatever preconceived notion you may have about your work, you also have to allow it the freedom to breathe and you have to allow, you have to allow yourself the freedom to imagine even within your own imagination and I think that, you know, the, your your work with your book, um, Charlie, as I will f refer to it from here on out, um, is a great example of that, considering how many different turns it's taken and how many different approaches you've taken to it because you've allowed yourself to do that. I think that that's one of the biggest and one of the biggest lessons I've learned, first of all, and one of the biggest mistakes that I see a lot of writers take is that they do exactly the opposite of what you said. They're, yeah. they're not present in the scene. And it happens in dialogue all the time. I see Ugh. awful dialogue all over the place because, uh, okay, into the weeds again, guys. This is some <laughs> practical writing advice. I'm not going to go too in-depth, but I, if you're a writer, this is useful. If you're writing dialogue, stop worrying about what you want to be said and start worrying about what the character is feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, you know what you need to and you want to be said. That's always going to be in the back of your mind. You can never silence that because you are the author. But if you focus on what the characters are thinking, and not just the main character, that's another mistake people make, is they only give good dialogue to the main character. And that makes for really boring scenes. So pay attention to what the characters want and what they're feeling. And then find a way to work through what they're feeling to express the thing that you need expressed. And when you do that, number one, you're going to have a longer scene, which is more interesting. And you're going to have dialogue that's alive. And that's real life. You know, you may have a character that needs to tell somebody that she's pregnant. But she might be talking to somebody who all they're thinking about is the fact that they need to get a new job because they hate the job they have. Okay? And if you forget that, you take the reality out of the scene. And it's I the forget. same 
Go ahead. I forget, I forget who said it, but I think that that's a, that's a very good point in the sense that every single character in your story should have their own story. So if you really needed to, you could write a story for each of them. Right. And that's that's one of the most difficult things at times because you worry about going big and, and bloating a story or whatever. But I can tell you from experience, any time that you bring characters to life and and you give them flesh, so, so as to say, that you're not doing something wrong you may have to edit it down later but you're going to find an aliveness in that scene that didn't exist before i had a character who needed to say something to his wife and i had written it out and then i sat and i read it and i said i wonder what she's thinking because i'd only written it from his perspective and he's the main character it's always going to be to some degree from his perspective but i had never considered what she was thinking and feeling so I sat down with a piece of paper and I wrote out all the things that she was thinking and feeling. When he said this, what are the things that ran through her head? And I really started to understand what was going on there. And then I took that and I went back into the scene. And the dialogue went way in a different direction. <laughs> but it still ended where I needed it to end. And it still made the point I needed it to make. But what I ended up with from having a very concise scene that... It got across the point I wanted to get across. What I ended up with was a scene that was alive. Mm. And if your book is full of scenes that are alive, you make a great book. Remember, people get caught up in plot and, and all of this stuff. Plot lives in the characters. If your characters aren't alive, your plot's dead, no matter how many cool twists and turns you have. So, anyways, be present. That's my point. Uh, let's move on to the second half of the show, Lamb, unless there's anything else you want to say about that. Um, if you want one good example, uh, pick up Sandman. Uh, every single character in that in that that story of comic books or that 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 collection of comic books has completely different motivations. And although most of the story is told through the primary character's perspective, which is Morpheus, um, there are definitely very clear motivations for every single person, and there and it's never really cryptic. Um, what their motivations are. So that's 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 a good example of how that can be done while still using one primary character as the narrative character. Another great example is Legion. Oh that's yeah, the TV sure. show, not the comic book. Um, I just I watched the last two episodes last night, so that was on my mind. Yeah. Um, okay, so that kind of leads us directly into the second half of the show. This is stuff that we've been reading, watching, listening to, scribbling on walls, whatever that are inspiring us. And Lamb, of course, I would like you to start. I don't know how I it why it took me so long to get into Westworld. Um, every person that whose opinions on art I value has told me that Westworld was amazing. That's probably why I didn't dive into it um, sooner. Actually, <laughs> it's because I'm just so sick and tired of hearing it from everyone. Um, pretty much every person, Brandon, Matt, Brian, every single person, every friend of ours that we respect when it comes to to art or creativity just kept telling me watch Westworld watch Westworld and I finally dove into it and I can't even tell you how much I love it um it, it needs to be watched to appreciate it to be appreciated and it's definitely not a show you can kind of just casually watch um to to really gain the full experience of that show I highly 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 recommend watching it with care um, you know, there are some shows that, you know, some sitcoms in this world that you can just kind of watch and, 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 and let meld, melt over you. Um, 
Westworld is definitely a, an engulfing show, and you've got to let it do that to you. I haven't divin, divin, divin. I made up a new word. Uh, I haven't dove yeah. into that one yet, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I just have to finish. I have so many other ones that I'm in the middle of. Um, you, by the way, maybe we should mention, Lamb, you, uh, you've murdered Netflix and switched to HBO, huh? Yeah. Um... You know, honestly, over the last year and a half, I've I've kind of been thinking about doing it anyway, ever since you kind of did it, uh, just because there's not really a whole lot on Netflix that really keeps me there. Certain shows um, that are more amusing than anything, than anything like Bob's Burgers and Archer and um, Arrested Development, you know, I miss those shows for sure. Uh, but just the overall quality and depth of the shows um, on HBO Go, um, are, it, it's just in a different league. Right now, the two shows that I'm kind of binging, um, on both sides is uh, Veep, which, by the way, one of the most cleverly written shows I've watched in a long time. Um, it's like House of Cards if House of Cards were just relentlessly funny and just completely irreverent. Um, and, of course, Westworld. But, yeah, I, I don't I'm, – I'm, the more I'm past the Netflix thing, it's like, a, it's like a relationship, right? Like the further – the more time you give it, the less of a tangible effect it has on you. And I feel like three weeks into this experiment, I'm starting to miss Netflix to the point where I don't even think about it anymore. See, the, the, and this is the thing that bothers me about uh, Netflix, which, by the way, I, um, to be clear, I just renewed my Netflix last week. Um, because there were some things on, <laughs> there's some things on there I wanted to watch, but I don't think Netflix is going to be a thing that I just always have activated. I think I'm just going to turn it off when I'm not watching stuff on it, and you know, put the the subscription on hold, and then because sure. uh, there's certain um, documentaries and stuff that go straight to Netflix that I want to see, and I'm actually going to talk about one of those later. But um, I I renewed it, and um, going back in after I've been away for months. I don't even know how many months it's been since I canceled it. Um, I think four. Uh, going back in, the, the most frustrating thing in the world is I hate, hate, hate their apps. Because all it does is spit out Netflix content on me, and I can't find the actual stuff that I'm looking for. You know, um, I spent years and years using Netflix. I was, I was a, a, a DVD user before um, the streaming even existed. And I was one of the first people to use the streaming service. And I used the streaming service. I would. This is funny because I would I would get the DVDs that I wanted, but you know it took a couple of days to get DVDs. Even though I live in the same city as Netflix, um, it would take about two days, approximately. So in the two days that those discs were out, I would watch the streaming stuff because there wasn't that much on streaming. So you know, like while I'm waiting for the stuff I want to watch, I'd check out some other stuff or whatever. But I spent years and years rating everything that I watched. Huh. The little five star rating that they had, right? And two two complaints about this, not to go into negative land for too long here. Two complaints about this. Number one, they ditched all of those ratings just recently and switched to a thumb up, thumbs down. So years and years of me rating things and got thrown in the garbage. But maybe the positive aspect of that is they sucked at correlating data from what you liked. <laughs> I would get suggestions for things and like and look at it and go, I have no interest in that. I've rated over 5,000 things and you can't figure out what I like? Worst algorithm ever. And now all the algorithm does is try to sell you stuff that they made. So anyways, yeah. Yeah. so frustrating. Anyways, um, 
I was going somewhere with that, but it probably is not that important. <laughs> well, let's then let's 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 flip the let's flip the coin then. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to? So, um, well, going along with the Netflix thing, then the reason, well, two reasons that I renewed Netflix. One thing that I like to, um, I have a uh, palate cleanser. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I watch a movie every night, and uh, if you follow on, on on Instagram, my story. My Instagram stories, I usually show you which movie I'm watching every day. Oh, speaking of which, but just on that point, Kayvon and I were literally talking about your Instagram stories the other day, and we were trying to figure out what, what the what the rhyme or reason was behind why you picked the movies that you did. Just what I'm interested in at the night. That night, there is no overarching theme. Yeah, there's yeah. some weird stinkers in there, man. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think that uh, you have to watch stinkers, and sometimes people think movies suck, and I like them. Um, that Mordecai movie with Johnny Depp, horrible reviews. I enjoyed it. Hmm. First of all, because I know what it was. It was an homage to Peter Sellers' Pink Panther. Yeah. And if you like the Pink Panther, then you should probably like Mordecai because it's the exact same type of humor. Um, I just think people thought it was going to be something else, so they didn't like it. I mean, the reason I didn't like it was because, I, and I I even understood that it was an homage going into it, but I feel like the raunchiness of it took away from the charm a little bit. Really? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because there, I don't there even some... remember any raunchiness. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was just more more innuendo than the Pink Panther had in a much more obvious way. You know what I mean? It oh yeah, that's that's the wrong way to put it. But it definitely wasn't as subtle, and I feel like you lose a little bit of the charm without the subtlety. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't have that problem. Huh. Actually, I mean, let's be honest here, guys. I wasn't, like, cracking up laughing. But, I mean, if you've ever seen The Pink Panther, you don't crack up and laugh during The Pink Panther either. It's it's a sh- it's a movie style that's uh, it's very British. Um, not to offend any British people. It's very British in the way that um, we Americans view British humor, which may be inaccurate. I don't know. Sure. I haven't lived in England long enough to know that for a fact. So please forgive me if I'm making a generalization here. But it's very much in that line of what we think in the sense that it's not meant to make you laugh crying it's meant to amuse you like oh that's amusing oh that that that's pretty funny that's amusing um now there that's that's how i felt about the movie so anyways um back to netflix the reason that i went back onto netflix um particularly i have these palate cleansers i like to cleanse my palate at the end of the day, and usually um, this is just for a mood thing, I will watch one episode of Friends or one episode of How I Met Your Mother. And mm-hmm. I've seen them all the way through before. Um, they're funny, um, but they're not like laugh out. Um, well, actually, sometimes they are laugh out loud. They're not hysterical. They're just they're solidly, consistently funny. And uh, I don't have to be serious about it. So I can kind of half watch it as I'm getting ready to like have my quiet time and do a little bit of reading. So um, the problem I was having was those two shows aren't particularly on anything other than Netflix, um, except for like the TBS app, which I can only watch like five episodes a week. So I'd always come up too short and uh, it skipped around in weird ways. Anyways, I went back for that and I also went back because um, a couple years ago, there was a, I think it was a Kickstarter, it might have been Indiegogo campaign for the restoration of a film on William S. Burroughs called Burroughs. Oh, was, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was made by a, gay, a, gay, oh, sorry, a guy named uh, Howard Bruckner. 
and uh, Howard Bruckner was a actually gay filmmaker in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, unfortunately, he was also um, a junkie um, and kind of a, a secret junkie. Not a lot of people didn't know because he didn't come across that way. But he died early. He unfortunately got AIDS. I don't uh, kind of miss this part of which of those, whether he had unprotected sex that caused it or if it was because of um, needle use. But anyways, he, he died. And his nephew, who was the one who was restoring the Burroughs film that I contributed to to help have that movie restored because this was one of his um, great one of his great movies, um, as far as I think Howard made like five movies. And it was in a state of disrepair. For people who don't know, before the digital age, when movies were made on celluloid, they only existed on celluloid. And the problem with celluloid is that they fall apart over time, that they will decompose. So uh, many of the great films um, in history have actually been lost to history because they were never transferred into a, a format that would um, allow them to survive. And so I contributed, as did many, many people, including Jim Jarmusch, the filmmaker, to uh, the campaign to restore Burroughs. So I'm, I was familiar with Aaron Bruckner and Howard Bruckner. Aaron Bruckner is the nephew. And Aaron just made a film. And the film is called Uncle Howard. And it's a documentary about Howard Bruckner. And oh. so, it was released on Netflix. So I went on there to watch that. Um then I have one other thing, but I want to go back to you if you have another thing, because I don't want to make this top heavy. Uh, I I was diving through um, some of my old poetry books. I like to do that every once in a while. I have a particular bookshelf that I have downstairs that uh, holds a lot of my prized possessions uh, when it comes to, to my literary collection. So I did – I don't know how healthy this is. Um, for, for a human being to do, but I kind of dove back into Sylvia Plath a little bit. And it's funny because throughout the course of your life, you have a certain sense of, of romanticism that you, you hold towards certain authors or writers or musicians or whatever it may be, um, because you read them at a certain age and they inspired a special thing in you. Um, and I feel like with Sylvia Plath, I definitely had that when I was in my early twenties, um, you know, during my formative college years, basically. When I was, uh, you know, when I fancied myself a writer, and I was working pretty hard at, at that 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 persona, I guess. Um, God, how 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 stupid does that feel now? All these all these all these personas we create for ourselves throughout the course of our lives, and how 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 little they they help us to become the people we're meant to be. Um, but I guess that's not inherently true. I, I guess all of those things, in some way, contribute to the journey um, that that then weaves the tapestry that is our lives. But um, I read Sylvia Plath again, and I, I found that there were pieces I definitely didn't like as much um, at this age. And there are definitely pieces that I understood way better. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was fascinating. I, I, I think it's a very good idea to do that with a lot of, a lot of pieces. Um, and it doesn't have to be something as, as stern or serious as Sylvia Plath. I also did the same thing with Blazing Saddles. Man, there's a lot of stuff in Blazing Saddles. Um, and for anyone who... who that, that movie deserves a careful watching as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's Mel Brooks, so it's slapstick fart funny as well. But there's a lot of social commentary in, in that movie that just went way over my head uh, when, I was, when I was 
was younger, and now I actually get it. You know, we, we forget that the artists that, that are creating things that we're watching um, in whatever formative year or age that we are, are at our age, and they have that level of intelligence and cleverness that we have at the age that we are now. So there's a lot of stuff hidden in those things that we don't realize are, are there. Right. That's one of the reasons that I love How I Met Your Mother. There's all these little nuggets in there. But uh, going back to Sylvia Plath, it's been a while since I've read Sylvia's poetry. Um, I love calling her by the first name like we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, why? Actually, you ever wonder why that is? We always, when we refer to, um, when we refer to public figures, we we always refer to men by their last name, but women are always by their first name. Huh. That's strange. I want- I wonder if it's the, the opposite for women. I wonder if women refer to women by their last names and men by their first names. I think that's inherently true, too. I think the reason why is because, you know, we 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 feel like we can have a relationship with someone of the opposite gender if we happen to be that way, you know? Yeah. I also feel like maybe that there's a, a for some people, a lineage of lack of respect that, you know, the man must be referred to by his last name. But the woman doesn't deserve the same amount of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, just look at look at the last election, not to make a political point at all, but just look at the last election. Who ran? Trump ah, and Trump Hillary. Hillary. Yeah, true. Not, Interesting. not Clinton and Donald. Not Clinton yeah. and Hillary. Interesting, right? Yeah, that is interesting. Never thought of that. Uh, anyways, sidetrack. Um Going back to lovely, lovely lady Sylvia. By the way, if you guys haven't seen a picture of Sylvia Plath, I'll put her picture of her in the show notes. She was hot. Yeah, I'm also going to find a picture of her and post her on the Instagram, too. She was beautiful. Yeah, she was pretty smoking hot. Um, and But the thing about her poetry, and like I said, it's been a while since I've read it, and I used to read her poetry fairly consistently. Um, I didn't like most of it. <laughs> Huh. So I you think, didn't even like it at the time. I think I think most of it was mediocre, mm-hmm. um, uh, but the thing about it was she had at least two completely brilliant pieces, which sure. were Lady Lazarus and Daddy. And to me, that's what I always always go back is is I would always go back to those two, and sometimes I'd venture into other ones, but I never really grabbed onto it. Another one of her poems, um, and like I said, it's been a while, so. It may have been an immature mindset at the time. Like I used to tell people I hated Robert Frost and I've read Robert Frost recently and he's pretty fantastic. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so so young man's young man's perspective may be completely wrong there. You know, you know, for Sylvia Plath, I think it's very much like the um the Frida Kahlo the Frida Kahlo perspective for me is that, you know, when I first saw Frida Kahlo's work, I didn't understand it because I didn't understand the rest of her life. And I think with Sylvia Plath, I think the reason why certain pieces spoke to me is because I understood when and how they were written. Um, like the bell jar stands out in my mind, for example. I, underst- I I know the story behind the bell jar. And I think because I know the story behind it, um, I have a lot more of an affinity to that piece. Um, I'm not sure if that's good or bad writing, though, because there's a part of me that really feels like a writer should create an environment that doesn't require a backstory in order to make it good. Well, I mean, that one's a memoir, so it kind of is a backstory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that there's 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 a sense of that too as well. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like if you have to have a companion piece to a particular piece of art, then it isn't inherently good on its own. Right. Yeah. I, when we say that things are inex, you know, certain things like we said about Frida Kahlo, that her art and her life were inextricable, 
And not in the sense that you had to know her life to um, appreciate her art. It's just that the two were so tied together that it was hard for us to talk about one without talking about the other. And that's that's a huge difference. And you're definitely right that if you have to know the st- it's like uh, I've always had a problem with introductions to books uh, because a lot of times in introductions of books, all people do is make excuses for the shortcomings in what you're about to read. Um, let me tell you about this so that when that comes up, you understand it. It's like you, that, that was your job in the book to tell me that. Now, sure. I, I, to this day, I still don't read them. <laughs> I, I, it's funny because I don't read them until afterwards. Well, it's good. It, I mean, some of them are awesome. Like some of them are necessary. Um, anyways, uh, speaking of books and uh, going back into something. So in writing the novel, uh, inspiration, going back to the meaning of this episode, sometimes you need inspiration when you're working on a project this long. And I've reached a certain point in the first section of the book where I filled in all of the holes. Um, and what I mean by that is I had, we'll, we'll just throw out random numbers. We'll say I had 30 small scenes. And in looking at those 30 small scenes, I saw that, oh, this event happens too fast after this event. There's no explanation of why this happens here. So I saw all of these um, additional scenes that needed to be added to make a consistent line through what I've written already. And I've finally gone through and I've written those. And now I have to finish out this section of the book, which I'm two-thirds of the way through the first section of the book. Um, so I need to write the last third. And there's a point sometimes, and this may just be me, but there's a certain point where almost like you forget how to be a writer. Um, <laughs> like you you got to explain that one. <laughs> There's times when you're very confident that you know what you're doing, that you, um, and I don't mean just with the story, but that you know how to, this is really, this is going to be weird to explain, but I think it's good for people to hear because I'm sure they experience it as well. Sometimes uh, you look at something and you go, do I even know what I'm doing? (laughs) Like, like (laughs) you, you look at a scene and you go, am I just writing the same type of sentence over and over again? Do I just say this and then this and then use the word then and a comma and then put this? Am I filling this out? Am I actually writing or am I just outlining? Um, I, I, I wish Dickens had done that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> me too. Um, and then, the, I mean, there's other things too where you, you, you're like, I, oh, I have to, I have to accomplish this. Like, for example, there's a, a tension between a husband and wife. Okay, I need to write the tension. I need to build the tension of the husband and wife. And then you get to this point, you go, do I know how to do that? And what I find uh, is very helpful to me when I get to these points, and it's usually it's just um, you've you've entered a different train of thinking. You need to get yourself back into the train of thinking as a composer as opposed to an editor or a researcher, which are the many different hats you put on as a writer. Um What I find helpful is to go to a book, um, a book that you know already, not a new book, and um, seek inspiration or sometimes knowledge and sometimes dissection. So um, what I mean by dissection is, for example, I 
literally that was not an example I needed to really understand. I've never been married, so um, I couldn't necessarily write about a marriage um, from expertise and experience any more than I could write about a marriage with tension in it um, because I haven't experienced either of those things. So I needed to feel that I had a baseline to begin to move forward with that. So what I did actually is I went and I found a book that I haven't read, and uh, it's it's called The Ice Storm. Um, fantastic, oh, yeah. devastating movie made from it. Um, and I just sat down and I started reading the book, and not in the way that most people would read a book. I read a book and with a piece of paper, or actually with my, my iPhone and split screen, and uh, I just sat there and I made notes about what was going on. Um, I guess it would be kind of hard to explain this without really you guys understanding the full texture <laughs> of the whole thing. Uh, I could try to find these notes, but I probably won't. But essentially what I'm looking for is what's going on in, in, in a scene. What and, and I don't mean what is going on with the story and the plot line, but what the writer is doing to express the things that they're getting across. And this reminds me of things that I know how to do. It also teaches me new things. So I can see, like, for example, I have written here um, that it in a scene um, between two characters, um, sometimes uh, it's, it's good to take the main character in, uh, when in third person to take little peaks of that person's past and, and peek them into the present scene um, because it, it gives the present scene more weight and tangibility. So I can see that, like, in the ice storm, He's uh, the the main character is in a bedroom waiting to have an affair with um, his neighbor, and while he's waiting, he's um, looking at things around the room and describing things around the room. And then all of a sudden, it goes into this: once his dreams had been songs, he had been a balladeer of promise and opportunity. The corridors of financial industry were his, and it's just like a little paragraph where it kind of talks about something that happened to him in the past. And it doesn't necessarily relate to the present, but it kind of relates to the present. So what I'm seeing here is a little technique, and I go, oh, have I done that in any of my scenes? That would be useful to do here and there, give a little bit of history. So um, another book that I that I dip into that I know um, is very helpful for me in this particular book is um, one of our um, one of our featured artists in the past was our first featured artist, Haruki Murakami's um, Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Oh man, I do the same thing. I, I was waiting I was waiting to actually say that. But yeah, go ahead. I do I literally use him as as a, a touchstone as well for my own work. And what's what's incredible about pointing pointing that out um right now too, number one is there's nothing ashamed with having influences, guys. Um don't ever be ashamed of that. Don't ever be ashamed at looking at other people's work to learn things. That's your job. That's how you get better at doing things. Don't ever be ashamed of that. Um, but what's what's fantastic to me about that book, um, when I started my book, Charlie, we'll call it, when I started it, in a lot of ways, it was, I don't want to say an imitation of that book. But it was definitely um, the strongest influence when I started. And in many ways, I wanted it to be like that book. And it, as you've said earlier, that this book has taken a lot of twists and turns in the time that I've written it. 
Um, and it's definitely become something very different than that book. Um, it is very, very, very different than that book in the point where no one would probably even notice any similarity between the two anymore. But I know that that's one of the places that I started. So to go back and to look th- look at that book, and um, I wouldn't dissect it the way I was dissecting Ice Storm because I've already done that. Um, just to go back, and what it does is it gets me the mood. There's a certain... And not the mood of that book, and not the mood of my book, the mood of me. There's a certain way that that book makes me feel that regardless of what I do technically with my book, I want my book to make me feel that way as well. Mm. So to be able to dip my pen back into that ink, um, so to say, um, that's that's one place that I go. And... uh, Actually, before I before I go any further, Lamb, is there anything you want to say about Wind Up Bird? Uh, not necessarily, but I do really like the mood of me thing. I think that that's something that's very underappreciated when it comes to creating an artistic space for yourself. Um, what piece of work, whether it's writing or music or, or, or film, makes you feel most like you? I think I almost think that's the title of the episode (laughs) because that's kind of loose it's kind of loosely what we're talking about with all this stuff anyway you know how to create the the version of you that you need to be in order to produce this stuff it's funny because you just picked something that uh i said to name the episode and i was gonna pick when you said the thing itself (laughs) which was something you said (laughs) Jeez, we'll have to thumb wrestle for the title um oh man you know what would be really cool is if there was a way to get people to vote on the title before we released it. Oh, before we release it, sure. Uh, anyways. So, uh, the last book. The, the, there's another book that I dipped into re- um, today. To, to Yesterday and today to help me move forward. And this book is a book that no matter what I'm writing, as long as it's fiction, I dip into. And this, in, in a way, you could say this book is my Bible for writing. And... Um, it is a book called How Fiction Works, which makes it sound like it is a instructional book on writing. It is not. It is a collection of essays um, written by a man named James Wood, not to be confused with the plural form of that word, which would be the actor James Woods. This is Wood with a D, no S. Um, he is a British literary critic. And this book is very hard to describe it is very heady in the sense that it's very literary and it is very technical on the literary aspects of it um it's 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 just it blows my mind every time that i read it there's so many things in there that uh, maybe i don't even understand that i keep going back to and then the next time i understand more of it um to give you an example he talks about um the actual mechanics of great literature which is why it's called How Fiction Works. Um, and he talks about, to be specific, um, I happen to have the notes here so that I could give a few examples so that I'm just not talking about some abstract thing for you guys. In in the book, he talks for a moment about James Joyce's The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. And he talks about the importance of the way that you word things and the importance of speci- being specific, specificity within a narrative. And how specificity makes a reader feel differently than when you're too generalized. Um, a lot of bad writing is bad because it's not specific enough. 
the human mind requires and craves specificity in order to latch onto something emotionally. Um, there's a line in a portrait of an artist of a young man um, in which Joyce writes, Mr. Casey told him that he had got those three cramped fingers making a birthday present for Queen Victoria. Now he says he says he could have easily written that line as Mr. Casey got cramped fingers making a birthday present. But by choosing to say it the way he did he does what he does is he opens us up to a story within a story. Um, Mr. Casey told him so first of all now there's an interaction between the characters instead of just telling you he got cramped fingers. Uh, he got those three cramped fingers. Specificity. Hearing somebody describe three cramped fingers is more interesting than just hearing cramped fingers. For some reason, you latch onto it. Listen to your own mind. You pay attention more when I talk about the three cramped fingers than when I just talk about cramped fingers. Making a birthday present for Queen Victoria. Hold on a minute. Now, if you look in the book, in the story, there is no more talk about Queen Victoria. So what he's done is he's left a specificity un- incomplete. So now somewhere in the back of your mind, as a reader, you're wondering, how come he got to make a, a, a present for Queen Victoria? And also, he never explains what the birthday present is, because it's unimportant. And now I understand why Murakami is the guy you go to when you need to um, get into your writing mood, because there is no person on this planet more specific than Murakami. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the way I write too. Like, and there's all these little hidden subtexts that, that sometimes you just write them for yourself. Sometimes you just put clever things into the things you write because it makes sense to you and no one may ever, ever figure it out or see it. And that's okay. If you're writing it for people to figure it out, then you're probably in the wrong medium. Um, and just to give you one other small example, um, that's, that's actually a note from, when I read it before, but one great one quote, I'll give you a quote here from him. He says, so-called omniscience is almost impossible. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, omniscience in narration is the idea that the narrator is almost like a God figure, that they know everything that is going on and they know what everybody is thinking and feeling. Um, it's impossible. And he talks about omniscience also as being um, people see that if you're an omniscient third person narrator, then you're um, editorializing less in the story, that you're 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 bleeding less character. You're from a more pulled back point of view, a more trustworthy point of view, and that a first person narrator, which is the I, I did this, I did that, is less reliable. And he says that's not true. Because an um, um, so-called omniscience is impossible. As soon as someone tells a story about a character, narrative seems to want to bend itself around that character, wants to merge with that character, to take on his or her way of thinking and speaking. And what he's talking about here is that you can say that you're from a pulled back perspective, but that character is bleeding into the words that you choose. And, it, and you have to learn to accept that, and it makes your writing better when you do. And I'm going to go through one more part, and then I'm going to stop this because I don't want to go so deep. 
I'm I just... do. I I want to add something to that once you're done, though. I have please please add now before I um, go on a long tangent. I think a person who does that very well, who kind of take, for lack of a better way of saying it, who takes the piss out of the third person omniscient perspective, is Paul Auster. I remember reading City of Glass and 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 thinking to myself that there are points in which the narrator doesn't really know what's going on either. And I think it was such a cleverly used device in in that particular piece. It's it, and this is the reason that I love. Um, I love Paul Oster as well. The reason that I love James Wood is because he points out things that we're feeling as readers, but he's he's actually explaining the mechanisms of what's going on, and he can give you these examples where he can show you a passage. What if it was written this way? Would you feel the same way? And if it was written this way, how would you feel about it? And when he does that, you can really see the magic of what a great writer is doing. And, uh, for example, here's an, here is a, a little piece written in the most pulled back, less editorialized narrative form. He stood, or he looked over at his wife, quote, she looks so unhappy, un, end quote, he thought, almost sick. He wondered what to say. This is direct or quoted speech. She looks so unhappy, he thought. Combined with the character's reported or indirect speech, he wondered what to say. The old-fashioned notion of a character's thought as speech made to himself a kind of mental address. Now let's hear that again, a different way. He looked over at his wife. She looked so unhappy, he thought. Almost sick. He wondered what to say. Now, you guys can't see this, but there's no quotations in this one. This is... Uh reported or indirect speech the internal speech of the husband reported by the author and flagged as such he thought and it is the most recognizable most habitual of all the codes and standard of realistic narrative now let's imagine that scene one more time he looked at his wife yes she was tiresomely unhappy again almost sick what the hell should he say now can you guys feel how that's different The narrator is talking, but the narrator is using words that belong to the character. What the hell should he say? That's not the narrator's thought. That's the thought of the character. Wow, that's clever. It's incredible the way that this guy can break things down. So I always go back here, and I always learn one thing. And if I can just find one interesting thing, and then I try to find a way to work that into what I'm doing... Um, that seems to re rebuild my confidence in my ability to structure sentences and to structure those sentences into paragraphs and to structure those paragraphs into scenes and so on and so forth. So find your inkwell and dip your pen.